Hey, thanks for hitting play. I got another interesting episode of the spinoff show for you. As you can see in the title, John Bellotti Jr. is on the show. If you listen to the Jock and Nerd podcast, you're familiar with that name. He's been on a few times. He's a big time Godzilla fan, big time martial arts, um, Hong Kong film fan. Um, we'll get into that in this show. But before being a fan of things, he's fucking talented as hell. The man is an artist. You can find his work on robo7.com. That's R-O-B-O, the number seven, dot com. Um, you can also find him on Instagram, robo7 spelled out on Instagram, along with being an amazing artist. He's also a scenic painter in the movie and film industry and TV industry as well. Uh, currently, he is a scenic painter for The Blacklist going on six years. You've probably heard of that show. I think I have a really interesting conversation with him about Bruce Lee, art, Godzilla. We get real nerdy and even talk about camera. So I think it's an interesting conversation. You're still here. Check it out. This is the Jock Spinoff Show. live Bilotti. well we're not live but hey Bilotti, how's it going i'm great how are you tony i'm i'm amazing this is so i've been looking forward to doing this with you because imran and Rugboy aren't here <laughs> that's how, i know that sounds terrible but whenever we have the four of us on it's fun but i feel like you, you you're only bits of, we only get bits and pieces of you yeah i i love those guys and i love hanging out with you guys when we see each other in Chicago and I love being on the show, but we're four, we're four very strongly opinionated nerds basically. Right. And I always have a lot of things to say and everyone else does, but you guys get to do it on a weekly basis. And I only come on like every once in a while. So a lot of, I feel like a lot of my personality gets lost when I do that show with you guys. And I feel yeah. like my energy level kind of sucks also because uh, a lot of times it'll be on like a weeknight or something if I got to work and, that's always tough for all of us or if it's like later at night. But um, yeah, it's just funny because like the three of you guys will go and then Emron will ask me a question and I'm answering it. And I'm like, yeah, well, this is how I feel, blah, blah, blah. And two seconds into it, he just cuts me off and just goes off on a tangent. And then I forget <laughs> what I was going to say. And I'm like, oh, what was my point again? And then we're on like a new subject and I lost yeah. my point. So then when I listen to the podcast, when I listen to like everything I'm saying, I was like, oh, wait, I was supposed to say this at that point, And I was going to say this at that point, blah, blah, blah. So this is very nice. I was, I've been looking forward to this for a while as well. So thank you for having me on. Hey, Tony. no problem, man. Um, you know, I think that the, it's fun doing, obviously it's fun doing the Jock and Nerd podcast, the main one. Yeah. Um, but with, what the fuck was that in the background? I just, I kicked a box below my desk. Oh, okay. I thought someone was breaking in. No, if they, did, if they did, I'd still keep going. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be interesting to just have us recording and then someone's trying to break it. I, I think there was a, YouTube, a live YouTube video once where someone was recording something. <laughs> there was. And someone we were, tried yo, to break in. Yeah, we were talking about that. When I was on the show once and you heard, again, you heard something in the background and they were like, what the hell was that? Are you being Rob Bilotti? And I was like, oh shit, maybe I am. And then I, I think we, some one of us brought that up that it was like live on the air or something that they were getting robbed. <laughs> Someone's yeah. coming through their window. Yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty insane. Yeah, just a live recording of a crime happening. Yeah, that'd be um, great. No, but the uh, what's fun? I mean, what's what's 
interesting about doing this as opposed to the other shows, you know, we have these topics that we have to hit on. And although our shows can go two hours, two and a half hours, they, they, it still feels like they move so quickly in terms of when you're recording it. Right. And when you have three people on, it's a lot, you know, because you have Imran who, who just fucking is a motor and just can't stop talking. You have Rugboy who um, just has this, is this wacky personality. So he's got to get his say. And you have me and me in there who, who's also trying to fight for airtime. So then when you throw a fourth person in there, it's just, it's just, it can be a lot. I've even, yeah. I've even mentioned Imran. I sometimes I, I don't like the four person format just because it, it doesn't feel like everyone's going to get enough time. Yeah, I or agree. Or the show is just going to be four hours. <laughs> I agree. Because there was that one time we were toying with having August Ragoni on the Jocka Nerd show. And then it was, the the conversation was, uh, for those that don't know, August Ragoni is the, probably the foremost, most knowledgeable person about Japanese uh, monster movies and anime and power, like Jap- you know, the Japanese Power Rangers, Ultraman, all that stuff. So we were talking about maybe getting him on for the Power Ranger movie and talking about the history of Power Rangers, whatnot. And I think you guys wanted me to go on as well. And I said, that's going to be a lot of people. And then yeah. someone was, I think either you or Rugboy were going to drop out just so we could have us all on. And even then, like August could just have his own show. Yeah. You know, because he knows so much. So I've actually, uh, I think I told you this off the air, but I, I actually talked to August and yeah, we're def- well, I'm definitely going to have him on on this Great. at one Great. point and he uh he's he's an interesting guy he can definitely talk he's one of those you throw a nickel in him and he's he's off to the races for two hours yeah i mean you you always come away learning something with me to talk to him i was just amazed at just how much he could talk and how interesting it was so yeah i yeah. couldn't i can't see that happening on our sh- i mean we could we could make it work but he would deserve he, he needs his own time he really in my does. opinion yeah. so yeah. What do you uh what are you up to? Are you still doing the blacklist stuff? Still on the blacklist. Yeah, we're coming towards the sort of end of our season, which is like mid to late April. Yeah. Which is about typical for like an, a major 22 episode network TV show. And uh, I'll take some time off. Uh rumor has it we're coming back for our 7th season. I don't know if it'll be the last season, but we're definitely it's I mean from day 1 of season 6 there was talk of season 7. Um so I don't know if maybe that was part of the deal with Spader because uh, James Spader is basically the executive producer on the show. So as he can do the show until he's like 99 years old. Um, but so I'm hoping that it'll just keep going and I could retire off the show, right. but that probably won't happen. So yeah, um, long story still short. Set painting is what do you call it? Scenic painting. Yes. Scenic painting. Yes. I paint sets. So for those that don't know, I'm not a scenic designer. Uh Everybody seems to get that wrong. No offense to anybody that I've, has said that. And basically, like a, uh, the carpenters will go in, they'll build walls and put door frames together and windows and whatever it is that the designer wants. The grip department will put up everything, and then the scenic painters come in and we paint the sets. So it could be an apartment set, it could be an alleyway set, it could be a sex chamber set, which we've done. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, our show is. I, I haven't watched. Uh, I've, I've never actually watched an episode of The Blacklist. It's a it's a really good show. And I've heard honestly, good things. Yeah, Spader. I mean, it's tough because you watch it and you're just transfixed by Spader. And when he's not on the the show or in the scene, you're just kind of wandering. It's like Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. I'll watch The Dark Knight and every scene that he's in, I'm just staring at the screen. And when it's Christian Bale, I'm just like playing my phone or I don't even pay attention to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Spader sells the show and he's hilarious. 
There was one, the first episode this season, not to spoil anything, was there was a bank robbery and Spader's character was in the bank and he was in the middle of trying to rob the bank as there was another robbery. And then he starts talking condescending to the new bank. Like, if you're going to rob a bank, that's not the way to do it. And then he robs the bank robbers. I mean, it was genius. It was genius writing. Um, I've I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah, it's great. And it it deserves its audience. And it's it's also a lot of fun working on something that people know and they love. I get stopped all over. People ask me, oh, I know you can't say anything, but can you tell me about this character? And I'm like, no, I can't. Sorry, you're going to have to watch. (laughs) What's that like? Do you have to sign a a non-disclosure or something? I typically do, but for this this show... I didn't sign anything. I don't know why. But so now you can, you could just spoil stuff, but then you oh, like just can, could run the risk of getting fired. Yeah. Well, actually, there was a set recently. Uh, the episode in error, so I can't say what it was, but it was a big sure. stunt scene, and somebody was filming it on their camera. And sure enough, like a minute after it shot, it was up on Facebook or YouTube, and an email went out from the producer saying, "No phones allowed when you're on set." Blah blah blah. Um, I don't. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't sign anything, but like Men in Black 3, I signed, it was like a textbook I had to sign to work on that movie. Oh, you worked on the Men in Black 3? Yeah, I worked on the um, the headquarters that they were in, the uh, the big white dome. Yeah. We shot that, uh, we built, they built that in Marcy Armory in Brooklyn, which is like an old uh, National Guard armory that they left, and then now they just shoot movies in there. So yeah, I was on that. I was on Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2. So I knew the whole story of both those movies while I was working on it. Were you disappointed when they came out and they weren't as good as, or did you think did you like those movies? I liked the first one. Um, I will always be a fan of Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker because mm-hmm. of his, mostly because of his look. And I think with the right writing, he could have pulled off the nerdy turning into the, you know, macho. No, he's not really macho, but he could have pulled off the classic Spider-Man that we all grew up with. Because Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man was a little too quiet for me. Tom Holland is good. He feels like a real kid, but he just doesn't look like Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was always Andrew Garfield. So when part two came out, the costume was amazing. And it was cool to be like, oh, I worked on that for six weeks or that airplane or that whatever it was. And then the, you're watching the movie and you're like, what the fuck? And, was and then I? the movie gets completely shit on by the critics and fans and basically kills the franchise. <laughs> Pretty much. <And> it's <laughs> crazy that it made like $700 million. Yeah, it made it still made a good amount of money, but yeah. everyone just blasted the film so much. Yeah. And, the, they, and they had such big ideas that they had to just shut everything down. And then luckily for, for Marvel or MCU fans, they were able to, to fold them in. Yeah. And at least the character. What's... Yeah. um. I've always wondered this because again, I have you. We we have you on the show. I've talked to you in person. Yeah. But I, what's you, you wake up early? You always are, always are saying that I have to wake up early. What's a typical day as a scenic painter on um, set? You know, it depends on the job you're doing. Typically, you, how long are you there? Would be the first question. How many hours a day do we work? Yeah. Uh, this job, most TV shows like this are running eight hour days. Okay, so like uh, that's that's normal nine yeah. to five just switched the hours a little bit yeah. a little earlier okay go ahead Mom. what what the typical day is like i'm trying to think because the reason why i like the job is because there's no typical day there's no sure. like you know sometimes i sorry to my boss if he's listening i doubt it but yeah you run on autopilot sometimes when you're just painting shit white or black or whatever it is mm-hmm. but typically i'll you know i usually try to wake up at 5 15 in the morning i'm out of the out of my place by like six and then we start at seven wrap it round three sometimes we work six in the morning to two in the afternoon 
most of the industry is 10-hour days, sometimes 12-hour days, sometimes weekends. But I like being – I'm not making as much money as I could if I could freelance. But because I'm core crew with the paint department, I have steady work, which is mm-hmm. amazing in our business. And I kind of don't want to trade that for something else where I'll make more money, but then it's over after two months. Because now I have like – you know, I've had like nine months of steady work, which is great. That's what you want when you're a freelancer. Mm-hmm. So – you know, I'll deal with the eight-hour days by doing more of my artwork at home. And then I go at the end of the season and I do conventions and I do online sales. And now I've been doing a lot of commissions that are bring, bringing in uh, extra income for myself. So, so when, when you're off work, you, you rely upon your art and the, the conventions and all that stuff to kind of help uh, tide you over till the next time? Yeah, pretty you're, much. You're back on set? Pretty much. With this show, I've been very, very lucky because when it ends and we get picked up... I know when we're coming back. So I could either go find work or I could just wait and do conventions and use that money to sort of tide me over. Um, that's kind of what I've been doing. There are sometimes, you know, early on, I didn't, I never had that luxury. So now I'm just sort of taking advantage of it. And then you don't want to overwork yourself because then you're burnt out by the time the job starts. And I've done that. And I had, I went from America's Got Talent to the show called The Nick. And America's Got Talent was like two and a half months. It was like boot camp. I mean, it was a lot of fun. They needed was, scenic painters for America's Got Talent? Yeah. A lot of those acts have a lot of sets. Oh, believe shit. it or not. I said the same thing, but you know, I made <laughs> I made I made a shit ton of money and it was in Manhattan at Radio City Music uh, Radio City Music Hall. Yeah. And I've never I was I never worked there, so it was really cool to see a be in a historical theater and in midtown Manhattan. I could take the bus in. It was it was great. It was in the summer and um, you know, our Did you meet Simon Cowell? No, he wasn't there. This was Howard Stern. Oh, the yeah. only one I met was Mel B. She was really cool. Was she? Yeah, Spice she was Girl. Cool. Yeah, Spice Girl. She was cool. Heidi Klum is gorgeous in real life. She she's a smoke. No, um, no, she, as in a smoke show. Sorry, <laughs> not asking if she smokes. I give no shits if she smokes. Yeah, um, I don't Heidi know. Heidi Klum was uh, was Tyra Banks there? I'm just googling America's Got Talent because I don't watch those. I don't really watch those. Um, talent shows like American Idol or anything like that. Yeah. Did you, it was Tyra Banks there too? No, it was uh, Nick Cannon. Nick Cannon Nick was Cannon. close. Yeah. I okay. think Tyra, Tyra came after. Oh uh, yeah. I don't it follow. Was, it was three seasons. It was over here. So I worked uh, two out of the three seasons. It was on. That's crazy. See, I don't, I never even knew that you were affiliated with these names of shows and movies and TVs, TV shows. Oh yeah. I mean, the list is, is endless. A lot of times you, you get a job and you get called for something. Hey, you want to come work on this Netflix? Now it's all Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. And you don't know what the hell you're working on, but you go for a paycheck. So you so, go and then it, you don't know if it's going to be good or not until after it comes out. No. And you don't even know if the show is going to be brought back. So being on this show has just been very... A blessing, probably. Yeah, just a blessing. There are other shows in New York that like Law & Order has been going... Their, Law & Order actually shoots upstairs from us. They're on season 20. Um the Black, uh, was it the, uh, Blue Bloods has been going for nine seasons there in New York. Uh, there's a show called Bull, which has been going pretty strong. Saturday Night Live has been going for like, I don't know, 30, 40 years now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there are a lot of uh, hit TV shows that have like steady crews and stuff like that. So, you know, I never experienced this before. I'm about 10 years in the business. And I this is six years, five or six years out of those Nine years have been this, and I can't complain, man. I really am going to stick around with it for as long as I can. I was, that was going to be my next question. How long can this, not, not just the blacklist, but how long can you just keep doing 
scenic sets. Can you do this forever? Is this something where you see old people even doing it? There are. Uh, I don't want to. Yeah. I kind of, I would like to retire sort of um, when I'm in like my 40s, 50s maybe. Jeez, you're going to retire early. Well, I mean, I got in when I was 30. And I think after 14 years, you could take an early retirement. So we'll see. Really? I don't, Holy yeah. fuck. You can, but you don't get you don't get the full amount. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which kind of sucks. So you're part of a union? Yeah, part of a union. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's crazy. I didn't see. I had no idea that this even existed. I knew that you were a part of it, but I had no idea that you, could, you were part of this union and that this, you know, the way the work schedule was played out. None yeah. of this. I had no well, idea. <laughs> a lot. Of, you know what, though? A lot of people don't. And you have a lot of kids that graduate art school like myself and we need a job. And I went for illustration and you know, I was going to be a comic artist. I probably said this on the jock and nerd show, but I'm going to say it again. Say it again. Yeah. I don't remember. Um, long story short, I was gearing up to be a comic book artist. I met with editors from DC. I had so many connections in the business, but then Marvel went bankrupt in the nineties. We all remember that. And I didn't take it. I didn't do it. And my parents uh, didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of money and I needed a job. I've always loved movies. Uh, movies are what kept me drawing. Like Bruce Lee movies, Godzilla movies, uh, action movies, guys with big muscles, stuff that we all you know, grew up with, Stallone and Schwarzenegger. And I said, oh, wow, it's, I'd love to work in movies too. So one day uh, during senior year of FIT, I was sitting next to some friends of mine and my professor, my friend turned to the professor and said, oh, my friend does uh, works with props on Broadway and he's part of this union. And he said, what do you know about that? And my teacher said, oh, well, I used to be a scenic painter and I used to work on Broadway shows up in Connecticut, this shop. Um, so from there, I just, I overheard her talking about it. And I said, wait, you work on movies and there's a union and you paint? And that's kind of how I found out about it. And then the next day, a bunch of us went down to the union hall to get information about it. And they gave us all the info and I said, well, I'm going to try to, I'm going to make a go of this because I want to be, I want to work on movies. I want to use my artistic abilities and work on sets. And right before I graduated, I was working at a, I was working at this toy store in the, in the West Village. Mm -hmm. And uh, a friend of mine was a martial artist. He did wushu. So I was hanging out with a lot of these guys that were wushu kung fu performers that went on to do some of the Marvel shows, like the guy that choreographs Daredevil and Deadpool. Um, and I think, what was the other one? Maybe, I think the X, one of the X-Men films outside of Deadpool he was doing, his name is Phil. He, you know, he was a regular, just a New York Kung Fu guy. And he used to go and perform and do shows and stuff. And now he's moved on to doing Hollywood movies. It's really, it's crazy just to like, now that I'm like thinking about it. Philip Silvera? Silvera. Yeah, Phil Silvera. Silvera really nice yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah my friend. He beat the guy. Yeah, my friend George Creighton, he moved out to California to do stunt work. So he was, you know, his father was on the Kung Fu stu uh, school in Queens. Um, but long story short, he knew a guy that worked at the Juilliard school. And one night we were out drinking and he, I was telling this guy, George, about, I want to be a scenic artist. I don't know how to do it. And he goes, oh, go talk to this guy over here. So this guy over here works at the Juilliard school. He's a stage manager. And I went up to him drunkenly and said, I want to be a scenic artist. And he goes, holy shit, Okay. <laughs> He's like, call this person at the Juilliard. He's like, they have a scenic art uh, intern program. I said, okay, cool. So I called her and it was like two weeks before the deadline of applications. And I went in and I had no experience being a scenic artist, but I wanted to do it. And I beat out 50 other applicants from around the world because of how bad I wanted to do it. The, the boss that was there, when she met me, she's like, 
I really want him. <laughs> and, and I, you just, I, you just expressed to her that you were, this was it. This is what you wanted yeah. to do. Yeah. And how, you know, how does she know that you wanted, really wanted it? I mean, I was, I was truthful. I was honest. I put my, mm-hmm. I, you know, I bear my heart and soul with stuff like that that I'm passionate about. And, you know, I need a. Yeah, I can't I need, see you ever lying, knowing you in real life. Oh no, my wife says I'm, I'm the I'm the worst liar. I can't. I'm. I've had a, a people I work with saying, "Oh, bloody, you're a terrible liar," and I'm like, "Well, yeah, I'm too honest." But um, <laughs> I, I mean, I want them over. I'm not. You know, I can't right. complain. It's been it's been working out for me. I've been getting steady work since I got into business. So, you know, people like me for whatever reasons. Well, I think I think people like you because you're a genuine dude. Yeah, I hear that a lot, and I I don't like disingenuous disingenuous people. Like I really right. I just des- I despise them. Like guys like Alexander Rodriguez, the baseball player. Every anytime <laughs> he would speak, I'd just cringe. When I found out that he was coming to New York, I just my heart sank. I was like, no, I don't want this guy in New York. Um, you just think he's he's well, yeah. I mean, you just you just think he's disingenuous, huh? Oh yeah, big with anything time. he says. I yeah, mean, he's I very concerned about his image at all times and. Yeah. How he's yeah. portrayed. And yeah, I mean, he definitely has an image that he likes to keep up. Yeah. And there are artists that I've met that I won't name, but I know them and they're just the most, you know, they, they illustrate the most bullshit things and think that they're great. And you could tell the passion's not there. And every time I do, you know, when I do my posters and I go to these shows, you know, people will come up to me and say, you, you really love this stuff, don't you? I said, yeah, a little bit. And they're like, no, I could see the love. So I'm very lucky that I can express myself and and people pick up on it. Like they they notice it, they see it, they feel it. That's all I mm-hmm. want. And people say, "Oh, I'm so comfortable around you, and I like working with you. You make me laugh." Blah blah blah. And I'm like, "That's great. I'm just I'm just honest, you know. I'm just an honest guy, and I call it as I see it." And but you know, I mean, my brother joke. We're not perfect, but we're like 99 percent perfect. <laughs> you're pretty close you're pretty close you're, pretty you're close. a stud man <laughs> well speaking of being honest i gotta be honest with you the uh the game of death piece that you put out yeah i bought the shirt man uh, thank that you shit, and i and i can't judge art all that well i can yeah. tell when it's good but i really can't tell if it's bad unless it's awful yeah but the game of death thing man that's fucking dope man thank you i bought the uh i bought it with the yellow background so i bought that shirt perfect perfect and then i bought the um the monster zero one that you you put out a long time ago oh cool yeah with uh i think a gray or a black background nice yeah i i left that game i'm sorry go ahead no no go ahead talk about the game of death shirt or not the the piece that's now on a shirt (laughs) yeah i you know that's funny because as a kid i hated game of death because it was just terrible and it's for those that don't know, Game of Death is Bruce Lee's last film, and he he stopped it's the one where he fights uh, Chuck Norris, right? No, no, it's when is he that? fights. Uh, no, that's Return of the Dragon. This is, is that, oh, that's that's Return of the Dragon. That's Return of the Dragon. Yeah, fuck me. Um, What's game, game of Death is which one? Is that which one's Game of Death? Uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. The yellow tracksuit, the iconic, most famous yes, Bruce yes, Lee. Yes, 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 uh, yes. So I've never actually saying? watched the full Game of Death either. Oh, it's terrible. No, and nobody has. But Game of Death basically he was he shot about forty five minutes of it, edited it. Uh, he did the editing. He did uh, dialogue, some music, and then they approached him about doing Enter the Dragon in the states. And he was like, "Well, this is my chance. I have to take it. I'll come back to Game of Death." But he died after he finished Enter the Dragon and never finished it. So it was just a they after he died in seventy eight they re, they released it, but they brought in a stunt double to play Bruce Lee and it was yeah, terrible I reading that. Yeah. yeah. I just saw it in the theater along with enter the dragon. It was part of like a double feature 
And it was just, it was unintentionally hilarious. There's one scene where he's sitting in a makeup chair and the reflection in a mirror is a cardboard cutout of Bruce Lee's face, like taped on to the mirror. It's ter- <laughs> You have to watch it. I'll send you the uh, picture I'll, of it. Yeah, I have to throw that. I, rem- I think I remember seeing that online at one it, point. You know, you watch it and then there's a scene in the movie where he gets shot and they fake his death and they're showing the actual footage of Bruce Lee's funeral and it's just so morose and weird and just very just weird you know like i don't want to see bruce lee's death like he's in a coffin and it's really him oh weird and then the end is basically the original uh like half they they cut down at 45 minutes to like 25 minutes of the original bruce lee footage and he comes in and it's you could tell it's a it's bruce lee he's got the charisma the moves all that stuff so for a long time i didn't like it and then this documentary came out called bruce lee is a warrior's journey and it was a two-hour movie documentary about Bruce Lee's Game of Death, how he developed it and how he uh, was uh, working on the script and the music and what he, how he was going to finish it. And the last half of the movie was the original 45 minutes of footage that he shot, and they restored it with new dialogue. And apparently it was lost for a long time, and I, f- I don't know exactly how they found it. There was a book that came out with it I never bought. So I watched this thing. And I was mesmerized, Tony. I was just, I couldn't take my eyes off it. And that, those fight scenes, like the, his fights, that's my favorite Bruce Lee movie. That 45 minutes is like my favorite Bruce Lee movie. And basically that, the fight scenes were so butchered and edited down for that original release that this movie looks nothing like it. Um, so yeah, there was one time I was at the gym on a treadmill and I was like, all right, I'm going to just do this like 10 minutes on a treadmill and go home. That came on the TV. I was there for another two and a half hours watching that on the treadmill. On the treadmill? On the treadmill. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, I love Game of Death. And I became obsessed with that yellow tracksuit look. I said, this is amazing. And like people, there were other characters in the movie that were never shown. And I've had this idea of doing a Bruce Lee poster, I want to say three years. That poster was about three years in my head, just gestate, uh, gest- gestating. I don't even know. Gestating, yeah. That, that gestating, would be correct. yeah. yeah. When you yeah. say gestating, though, I think for the first thing I think of is the alien embryo inside um, someone's stomach gestating as it anticipates its departure by <laughs> that's, that's bursting exactly through your think, chest yeah. in the alien movies. But yes, yeah. gestating would also apply in this sense. Yes. So um, <laughs> Continue. Yeah, no, pretty much. And then it just exploded. Um, but I always <laughs> had this thing about uh, doing portraits. I was very... I was never good at it as a kid, or maybe I just didn't try hard because I was always drawing comic book stuff and I kind of drew like pinup girls, but I just drew them how I sort of interpreted them, but not exactly how they looked. And then I started doing those Godzilla posters, which, um, you know, have been really very successful for me. I love those. Oh, thank you. Real quick, what does the, um, do you know the origin behind that yellow tracksuit? Why he's wearing that? What, from what he just, I can, or he just I, chose that color, because it's a, it's so distinct. I mean, it's it's an iconic suit, but it's so loud. Yeah, actually, a few <laughs> things about I've, a few things about that suit that I know of. Okay, uh, there was a comic book documentary about uh, with Joe Quesada was one of the guys talking about comics and stuff, and he says, "You ever see the movie Kill Bill? You know that track suit that she's wearing? That's from comics. That was inspired by comic books." And I wanted to reach in the oh screen and show like, Joe. I love your art, man, but shut the fuck up right now. <laughs> you don't know. I mean, how fucking blind are you that you can't like that's that's Bruce Lee. The yellow right. tracksuit is Bruce Lee. If you wear that, it's automatically Bruce Lee. I don't give a shit what you say. Right. Um, as far as I know, the yellow tracksuit was 
it's uh, like a single piece outfit and it's really, it's skin tight and it's supposed to symbolize the fluid martial artist, uh, you know, not tied down to anything. He, if it does, you know, if you notice the other guys, like Dan and Asanto, the guy with the uh, red headband, mm -hmm. he's dressed uh, like a Filipino stick fighter. And Kali, Ji, yeah. Yeah, Kali and Jihan Zoi, who is wearing, wearing a white Hapkido outfit. And Bruce is wearing something nondescript. And it's just, it's fluid and has movement and it's like water. It's basically, Game of Death was basically his philosophy on film, which is what makes it so tragic that he never finished it because it was every message that he ever had about martial arts and uh, his uh, philosophy on life and how to approach life. Well, he was one of the first guys, I'm not sure if he was the first, but he was one of the first guys that didn't follow traditional martial arts and a lot of the the masters or senseis or whatever you call them in the traditional martial arts kind of looked down upon him because he wasn't following kung fu or karate he was he was taking bits and pieces from everything so he was even the ufc sometimes considers him as the founder of mixed martial arts oh no um, they do you know dana white has said he said i got into this because of bruce lee and he goes he was the first mma fighter and it's 100 right. he's 100 right but with game of death um Basically, with this poster, what I wanted to say was, you know, this was the movie that Bruce was going to make if he didn't die with these characters and it had this energy and this sort of uh, fluidity about it. And um, like I said, I just wasn't good at drawing portraits and sold the Godzilla stuff. And then I sort of built my confidence up where I said, I want to get really I want to get much better before I throw my hat into the Bruce Lee ring. And I got to say, since I started sharing it on social media, it's been great. Like it blew up faster than most of my Godzilla posters. And I think that's because Bruce Lee has a wider audience because everybody, everybody loves Bruce Lee. That's the everybody. thing is when you compare, not that Godzilla sucks because we both right. like him, but Godzilla in a lot of, most circles outside of the G, G fandom, considered a joke. Yeah, and that's and that's kind of changing with the with the American films, but for the most part, kind of a joke, kind of silly. Yeah, everybody and their fucking mother likes and loves Bruce Lee or everybody. knows Bruce Lee, and and Everyone. has some sort of and the the fact that he lived such a short life also just adds to the allure of his impact on the world. Oh, so without think, a doubt. Yeah, so I think I think he just there's just mystique around Bruce Lee. So I'm not surprised that when you release a Bruce Lee piece, that's going to blow up. Yeah, I, I can't tell you, like, the love I got and the likes. Not that, like, you know, I do it. Yeah, obviously, we all do it for the likes. If you're sharing stuff yeah, on social media, let's yeah, not. You, 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 you can, you don't need to be ashamed of saying that. You do stuff to get other people to like it. Exactly. Only, obviously, you do it first for your own benefit. But right. if other people like it, that's an added bonus. You should exactly. be proud of that. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. And, like, it got shared more than most pieces I've done. And this one guy was like, oh, my God, I want to share this on my page and give me all your information. And. He was a really cool. Give me all. Give me your social security number. I was like, okay. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, sure. Take it. Anything, take for Bruce. It. You're, you're uh, <laughs> African prince wanting to give me some money. Yeah, he's he's Nigerian. He's got to be on the level. <laughs> oh my god! Tell my wife she divorces me. Oh my god! Where you going? <laughs> what, what have you done? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, the funny story. There was this uh, war torn country in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe somewhere. I don't know. Uh, I can't remember what country it was, but there was a civil war. Okay. And there was, Where is this uh, going? You'll see. Okay. And it's great because I was like, holy shit. And I think Shannon Lee said this on her on her podcast. Shannon Lee's Bruce Lee's daughter. She's yeah. got the Bruce Lee podcast. And she said that there was this country and people loved Bruce Lee so much that the only thing that both of those, both sides of the civil war agreed to was leaving up the Bruce Lee statue. That was the only thing <laughs> that they were agreed upon. 
And I said, that speaks to the testament of his character. So, um, yeah, to, to sort of get the attention. And then what made it really great, uh, you know, I sent it to the Bruce Lee Foundation. I said, hey, I'd love to sell this poster. You know, what can we do with it? What can I do? I love to work with you guys. I haven't heard anything back. And I'm sure they get a million requests a minute. Yeah. But one of the best things that happened with this was on Instagram. Again, I got a lot of likes on Instagram. But Dan Inosanto, the guy that wears the red headband and the Kali expert, his daughter is on Instagram. And she wrote in all caps, oh, my God, I love this. And I was like, holy shit. His daughter is an active martial artist. She's in the martial art world. She trained the actress, uh, what's her name, from Battle Angel Alita in the martial arts. So she is like a legit martial artist. She's a martial art fan. She's every, she embodies the martial arts. So it was almost more special to me that she said that than like Shannon Lee in a way. Mm-hmm. Because she, like I said, she's martial arts. And it's like, oh my God, like she likes this. And I sent it to her as a message. Hey, feel free to share. I love drawing your dad. He was a lot of fun to draw. So that was like the nicest thing to happen. And, you know, I've had the Godzilla guys buy my shirts. Like Ken Satsuma, the guy that played Godzilla in the 90s, he bought some of my shirts. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool, you know. But like having Dan Santos' daughter, like it's, for me, it was just everything. I was like, oh, it was, it was <laughs> worth it. It was so worth it to have that, you know. That's so, awesome, man. I mean, why do you, um, what, what made you obsessed with Bruce Lee? Of... Uh, I guess something I never told on the show was when I was younger, I was fat. I was overweight. People sort of made fun of me. I never had girlfriends. Well, now you're, but let's, let's give some context. So now you're what? Six, you're six, four, probably I'm six, two, six, two. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're pretty, I mean, you're, you're not built, but you're, you're, you're in good shape. Yeah. For sure. I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had to basically go, uh, fight an uphill battle, but I yeah. started, uh, you know, I started running when I was in my 20s and I dropped all the weight. So that sort of was like a late bloomer. So like from 23 on has been amazing. But How big were you? I guess at my peak, I was close to 300 pounds. And that's, oh, shit. It's terrible. When you're a kid and you're that fat, it's a, it's a pain and a wound that stays with you the rest of your life. And it, it everything in your life is touched upon it. So I sort of became a little reclusive. I didn't really... I had friends, but not a lot of friends. I did stuff, but I didn't do a lot of stuff. Never had the girlfriend... So, so Bruce Lee was someone I could look up to that beat up the bullies that would say stuff to me or, you know, he could defend himself. So I became obsessed with, um, you know, I, I kind of always had Bruce Lee movies and Kung Fu movies on when I was a kid. Same thing with Godzilla movies, obviously. But Bruce Lee <laughs> just was immersed in Asian culture as an yeah. Italian kid in New York. Yeah, no, it's it's I, Humphrey was 100 percent right when he said oh. that, you know, about me. It's weird because all my friends were into Star Wars and I was like, fuck that. I want like, you know, for me, Kung Fu movies and Godzilla movies are the source of Star Wars, which a lot of people don't know. I mean, you know, all the Lucas, all those early Star Wars movies are from Kurosawa movies and early Toho sci-fi movies and Kung Fu movies. I mean, Obi-Wan is dressed like a samurai, like, hello. But so I went right to the source, like in the Matrix, you know, right to the, you know, the land of light, basically. Um, But yeah, Bruce Lee was, you know, he spoke to he spoke to me, you know, he spoke to my low self-esteem and being self-conscious and said like, you don't have to take this shit. You can fight back. You could, you know, he had like this coolness about him and he could stand up for himself and nobody was fucking with him. And if they did watch out. So that's kind of where it started. And, and Bruce Lee was always in my life. I took Jeet Kune Do when I was a kid. You did? Yeah. Filipino with scrim. I still have the sticks in my parents' garage. Holy shit. Yeah. And I think the guy I learned from was sort of a descendant of uh, studying under Dan in the Santa, which is even cooler. And did you learn the one inch punch? 
Uh, yeah, we did. <laughs> we did, we really? did actually. We yeah. <laughs> yeah. We learned you that. You sent someone flying off a one inch punch? No, no, no. But I had, I was really good at Muay Thai. I was doing MMA before that shit was even. I'm talking You're like. You were doing Muay Thai too? Yeah. We did oh, Muay no Thai. Shitting. We did boxing. Well, that, uh, I mean, that all makes sense because Jeet Kune Do is, is, is a hybrid. Pretty much. Yeah. It's a hybrid martial art. Yeah. I was doing, we were doing Chi Sal, the sticky hands. So I was doing this. How old were you doing this? I was like 13, 14 years old. I was so young. You, so 12. you were a big kid, but if anyone fucked with you, you probably yeah. you would, you could whoop their ass. Yeah, I learned how to do a, a, a Musai like roundhouse kicks. I was, I had At really- 300 pounds? Well, I was starting to, I you wasn't- You starting to lose weight? I was starting to, yeah. Okay. But I would like kick the bag and they'd be like, holy shit, this guy's got strength in his legs. But I was 12. This, this was like 92, 93. Yeah, yeah. And UFC was in its infancy, so oh, UFC wasn't wasn't, it wasn't even around. I mean, no. there there was MMA, but it's not in the form that it is no. today. Well, back no, then it was it was like Royce Gracie, like it was the styles. Now it's just one style, right? So this is way before that. So that's why I just sort of laugh at all this stuff, you know, because it's like, well, I've been doing this before. It was cool, like every yeah. other fucking guy. That you're says you're that. The, you're that fucking old fart that's telling yeah. everybody you you were on it before anyone else. Yeah, and everyone's like, fuck you. Yeah, fuck this. So it's <laughs> it's the truth. I mean, it's the truth. It, you know, those old guys. You know, they're speaking from a place of truth for the most part. I, I always know. wonder if Bruce, like, how big Bruce Lee would have gotten if he, you know, stayed alive. I think about that, and I just read a. F- I read a lot of stuff on Bruce, and I just read a really good book on Bruce Lee called Bruce mm-hmm. Lee: A Life, and it's very controversial. So read it at your. Uh, Bruce Lee, what's it called? Bruce Lee, A Life. A Life, okay. Written by Matthew Polly. And it's, uh, like I said, read it at your own risk because it it reveals the very human side of Bruce Lee that a lot of people don't get. And I was always kind of like, well, I've read a lot of his books as a kid, but it was always like the legend, the legend. But it's like, well, did he take a shit? Like, was he a fucking human being? He's a man, right. He's a man with with faults like the rest of us, you know? And uh, where was I going with this? What were we saying? We were talking. We were talking. I, I asked. I was, or I didn't ask. I just speculated what it would have been like if he would have stayed alive. Oh yeah. How, how big he would have gotten, or because before you before you continue, I, I kind of think not not to sound morbid, but the death kind of helped him in terms of his po- oh, yeah. overall popularity. Like it just made him a legend because you, you didn't get you know at some point in in. And maybe not in the seventies or eighties, but you, you see it now all the time. At some point, some someone being human, their flaws just come out. At some point, you, oh, yeah. you know, there's holes that get poked in the in the facade. Yeah, and you know, he was an adulterer. He had a lot of he had a lot, few mistresses, and that would have came out. And the, the you know, his last mistress that they they found him in her apartment, they silenced her basically. And said, Don't talk about this. And she was in hiding up until like last year when she finally came out with it. Um, but uh, you know. I've listened to podcasts with his, with Linda Lee Cal- Caldwell, his wife, on it, mm-hmm. and she said Bruce was in a lot of pain from his back injury. That every day on set was like excruciating. He did a lot of cupping uh, for his back muscle. He always massages. How did he hurt his back? He was doing good mornings without warming up, warming up. Oh, for real? Yeah. And he yeah, put you, a, need to, you need to you definitely need to warm up to him before you do a good morning. Yeah. Yeah, and he said something popped, and he didn't think much of it. And then, like a day later, he couldn't walk. And he the said, "The only never- reason I know what a good morning is is because I joined a CrossFit. By the way, I well, never used to even do good mornings. Yeah, I yeah, I won't, I won't do them. I'm not, I can't jeopardize my job. That's very physical <laughs> because yeah. I want to do a good morning when I could do three other exercises that are, you know, not as good, but it'll get the job done. But, Got it. Uh, so he was in a shit ton of pain. He was in a lot of pain, and and Linda Lee said that he was he would have moved more towards producing and i think ultimately he wanted to own his own uh production studio because he felt a lot of to this day 
Asians weren't getting the roles that they should be getting, and they're right. getting looked over and passed over. So he was a prophet in many ways because he wasn't wrong. And he would tell Brandon when he was a kid, he said, be an actor, but be a producer, make your own movies because these guys will not cast you. So I think that's where he would have went. If he ended up in like these Steven Seagal movies with DMX, that would have been the most tragic thing. Oh, that would have sucked. It would have been terrible. Or like Muhammad Ali, like when he was just getting punched around in the ring towards the end of his career, it's just like, just stop. Please stop. Yeah, there's there's always the, the point where you see your idol, or your legend, whether it be in sport yeah. or movie, and they take a role or, you know, as Muhammad Ali, you know, they take a fight. Yeah, and you're just going, oh no, that's that's not how I wanted to remember you. Yeah, it's, I, I don't it's, think it necessarily taints it, but it just it it leaves a, a it's like oh man, that's not what I, you know. Or Jordan, yeah. like Michael Jordan on the Wizards, it's just like oh oh god. Oh, no. or, or um, when Tina Martinez left the Yankees and joined the uh, the Devil Rays at the time, I was like, oh, oh my Tina. gosh, I remember, I remember that. But the Cardinals, <laughs> he was on. No, he went to the, I think the Cardinals and the Devil Rays. I was like, oh Tina, what are you doing? Or mm-hmm. Whenever the Yankees got any big agent in the mid two thousands, it was like, "Oh, what are you guys doing here? Get out of here!" <laughs> Jesus, Randy Johnson. So you, you, you don't you don't know who knows how big he would have gotten, huh? But he probably would have. He probably would have been a big influence as far as producing. For sure. Yeah, I think he. I think his death. I think the biggest thing it did. The most. The more I read about it, I think he's his death set back uh, Chinese actors getting. Yeah cast in major roles. I think if he was alive, he would have seen to the creation of that because he was a creator. He was creating shit left and right with his martial arts, his philosophy. Um, That would have been his crowning achievement was basically funding movies with Chinese leads in Hollywood because he had the cloud at that point. So that's kind of tragic that like now in 2019, you know, like, you know, it's funny because again, you know, when I was a kid, there was no Chinese people in movies, but it's the truth. Because, you know, now they're fighting for, uh, you know, blacks and Latinos and stuff in movies. But I've always said, like, the Chinese have been getting ignored in these films for years. And I'm so sick of seeing... I love Keanu Reeves. Point Break is one of my guilty pleasures. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. But I don't want to see him doing Kung Fu. I want to see Donnie Yen in a major Hollywood movie as a lead doing Kung Fu. Right. If that's what the role calls for. Like, get the guys that really do it. He was in Rogue One. He was the best part of Rogue One. Yeah, in my you opinion. loved him in Rogue One. I remember oh when we God. talked about it. Yeah, he was like a revelation. It's like you like see, this is what you people have been missing. But uh, you his, know, and his role—I mean, he was so just. I mean, he didn't have a ton to do, but right. just the lines and that he had. He was he. I was enamored with him just in you know in the short time that he was on in, on screen for that. Yeah, film. I thought he was the best. Yeah, I like I like you. I think he was one of the more intriguing parts. Yeah, and he's got a lot of charisma. He's got a lot of talent. Donnie Yen is probably my favorite right now because uh, I still follow a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I and can tell. I notice it's it's going in two different directions. Donnie Yen and the Hong Kong stuff tends to be a little more bloodless, and Donnie Yen is starting to bring in MM. He's been bringing in MMA type of moves like takedowns and uh, arm bars and stuff in his movies, and he's really innovating. Uh, he's being very innovative with a lot of the new choreography. Mm-hmm. And then you, you have the subgenre, subgenre of these Indonesian films like The Raid, The Raid 2. Uh, what's the other one? They come at night and they're very, very violent. They're very choreographed and they're very bloody and dark and just really dark. I remember watching, because um, I've never fully watched The Raid either. Mm-hmm. Ong Bak, right? He's in it? No, that's Tony Ja. That's the other... That's a, that's a Thai film, yeah. But is that are those similar to the Raid? Well, now they're all in the same movies together. 
Okay. All, there's a movie coming out called Triple Threat, which is Tony Jaa from Ung Bak and Iko Kuai from uh, the Raid movies. And then this guy from China, Tiger Chen. Okay. So now I they're mean, all just, I don't mean to mix them all up. It, as being an Asian, I guess I should be better at this. But <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching the Raid. Yeah. Watching those fight scenes. And it is, I mean, it's very well done, but there is a darker bloodiness to it than, than you would see in the... in some of the other Hong Kong stuff for yeah, sure. Yeah, very dark and it's hard to watch. Like, at sit, times, yeah, yeah. At times it's it's a bit difficult to watch. Right. I mean, I mean it's a, but it's, it's, a, a, it's it's to be admired, but it's definitely Oh my whoa, god. Jeez. Yeah, the first raid, I mean, I I love that movie. It's and part 2 I think is even better story-wise and the fights um but the thing with those guys like Tony Jaa especially and Eco is that they don't got that acting ability. They don't got the charisma that yeah. Bruce does or Jackie or Donnie Yen or any of these guys. That's what they're missing. They're really good technically, but you put them in front of the camera and they that's it. They're just they're stale. Even Van Damme. Van Damme had some charisma because I was watching Death Warrant last night and he's a good looking guy. I'll say that. You, <laughs> you can't take your eyes off the guy. It's, you know, but he has that at least. Right. But, you know, it's like when you watch, I don't watch wrestling and I know you guys have talked about it and, you mean, you you're talking about pro wrestling? Pro wrestling, yeah. Like wrestling. Oh, I don't watch it all that much anymore. I don't really watch it anymore. Well, it's terrible. But in the 90s, it was the shit because you had guys like Shawn Michaels who could do these amazing moves, but they had so much charisma. And you put them in front of the mic and they would sell it. And it was amazing. And you need, you know, to do these martial arts films, you need that, I think. Oh, no. I mean, the thing is, it's you can be great in terms of your fight choreography, but to really, at least to make it over here, Right. I think there's got to be some sort of magnetism because there is already, you know, stereotypes with Asians from the get-go. Right. So if if you can't overcome that stereotype of just being a, a you know, a martial artist, then you really don't have you're not going to be a lead over here. Right. Right. And you know, everybody wants, you know, they all, they try to make Jackie Chan the next Bruce Lee. And in a lot of respects, he was because he was like, Bruce kicks high, I kick low. You know, Bruce beats people up, I get beaten up. And he's amazing <laughs> at it. And you should listen to his story about when he, his last story about Bruce Lee. I won't say anything, but it's just, you need to watch it because it's amazing. Okay. But he was, I think he was I think the he next. He was so goofy. He was goofy, but yeah. he was, he was huge. He was the biggest star oh, in no, the he, world. Yeah, he was, he was, he was awesome. He wasn't, I didn't think of him in the same i don't think of him in the same light as bruce lee right in terms of his impact like he was definitely huge bruce lee though had the the swagger and the charisma oh, yeah. whereas jackie lee also jackie chan jackie lee wow jackie chan also had charisma but it was that that goofball he was goofball, goofball. yeah he was a jackie was a better performer than bruce bruce lee was the real deal i'm not saying that if you got into a street fight with jackie the guy couldn't defend himself because i'm pretty sure he could but bruce lee was he was the martial arts. Jackie, like I said, was a performer, an actor. Stunt guy. Stunt guy. But you know what? Jackie's Jackie's fight scenes are some of my favorite fight scenes ever in Hong Kong movies. He revolutionized, revolutionized. I can't talk today. Oh my God. Um, I make you nervous? No, I had this big bowl of ramen earlier that was just like, <laughs> we're crashing from all the carbs here. Holy <laughs> shit. So, uh, <laughs> so, and I'm really hot right now. Like I'm burning up. I run hot. Anyway, um, <laughs> what the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> I don't know anymore. It's getting fucking weird. Uh, no, so like Jackie's movies, like Police Story, uh, Wheels on uh, Meals on Wheels, Drunken Master Two, my personal favorite Jackie Chan movie. Those fight scenes are revolutionized fight choreography. So Tony Jaa, the guys from the raid, they all that all came from Jackie Chan. 
Mm-hmm. That didn't come from, I mean, it all sort of came from Bruce, but there were martial arts movies before Bruce, guys like Alexander Fushang and, uh, well, what the fuck's his name? The guy, the one-armed swordsman. I can't remember. No one, knows, no one fucking knows who he is anyway. Who gives a shit? Um, <laughs> can't remember his name. But yeah, so there was, you know, these movies have been around since the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Bruce brought it into the spotlight and it was like, we're here to stay. And then Jackie took it and ran with it. And then when Jackie sort of petered out, like in the nineties, like I would say, well, he petered. I mean, but then he made Rush Hour with Chris Tucker, which yeah. catapulted him to a new stratosphere in terms of comedy. I love yeah. the Rush Hour films. Oh, they're hilarious. Part two is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, it's so stupid. It's just they're so funny. They're so. But, I mean, it, the, the chemistry those two had were, was amazing. Yeah, but the martial art, uh, the, like the Hollywood martial art film, went dormant, especially after Van Damme. Got into drugs and, and oh, yeah. uh, once this, and now with the comic movies, you know that's what makes uh, John Wick such a breath, a breath of fresh air because he brings back that old, you know, martial arts slash you know Hong Kong action gunplay movies that I. That's another thing that I love is like John Woo movies, but and I know I just complained about Keanu Reeves, but <laughs> it's nice to see like an. It's old nice school. to see an aspect of of what you liked in the past coming back. Yes, with like practical effects, and you know I. You know how much I love these superhero movies. I've been waiting my whole life for these movies, but some of these fight scenes, man, you know, Jason Statham said it once. He said, the fight scenes are terrible, and I, I agree with him. Outside of the Captain America movies and whatever the Russos touch, they're kind of shitty, if you think about sometimes, it. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes they, I mean, I read this, or I saw this article the other day, it might have been yesterday, where yeah. Marvel kind of actually focuses more on the the characters, right? and the action scenes are just kind of okay, we, we have to do this. But everything, but their real focus is on making all the character scenes really interesting. So sometimes those action scenes kind of take a back seat to, to the character stuff they're putting in. And it shows. It shows, I, yeah. I agree. I mean, I'm, a big, I'm as big an MCU fan as anybody, but I, I, would, I would definitely agree that some of those action scenes definitely could be improved, especially when you're dealing with the power sets and the characters that they're dealing with. You know, right. These things should always be super, super spectacular and super well choreographed. Right. Well, that... that uh the fight choreography in Daredevil from Phil Silvera, that hallway fight, which is, all right, it's a lot like the raid, but a lot of people haven't seen the raid. So that right. fight scene is one of the best Marvel fight scenes. That and the hallway fight with the Punisher in season two of Daredevil. Did you watch the hallway fight or the hospital fight in season three? No, we have to, we, we have, have to, to catch up. That. We got to do that in uh, Punisher, but... Uh, you know, that all comes from the so raid. You and your wife? Yeah, because we... <laughs> it was like, we. Yeah, like, like, I'm, <laughs> me like and I'm Venom. Yeah, me and you, let's do it. I would totally do it. I would totally watch it with you. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'll fly to New York right now and watch yeah, it. Yeah, I'll fly to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to... Dude, you have to see that. Daredevil season three is is really good. You have to check it out. I know. I, I, I have to watch it. I'm bummed out that they... Uh, they canceled it, but I'm hoping it goes to Hulu or something. Which yeah, is I think like, it'll eventually go to Hulu. Yeah, I think it's like the, the, the biggest open secret ever, that whole cancellation thing. But what did you think of? Were you a Jet Li guy? I was, but Jet Li, I love Fist of Legend. It's basically a remake of Bruce Lee's A Chinese Connection. Mm-hmm. I thought that was good. And the thing with Jet is that he does a lot of wire work, and I'm not a big fan of the wire work. Like Everybody was creaming their pants over... Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Like, right. Oh, the choreo- I'm like, guys, come on, man. I was watching Yun Wu Ping do that shit in the 80s, you know, growing up. Or uh, what's his name? I probably mispronounce his name, but Ching, Ching Su Ting, I think his name is. He did this movie called Duel to the Death. And that movie inspired 
every fucking anime that involves ninjas or samurai. If you watch Duel to the Death, which came out, I think, in the early 80s, mm-hmm. and you watch Ninja Scroll, the most famous like ninja anime of all time, it's just, like the same fucking movie. So those guys were doing it like way before Crouching Tiger. So when people were, like I said, jerking off over that, I was like, guys, it's Chalion Fat. He, come on, he's just an actor. He doesn't do this shit. <laughs> so Jet Li kind of like Once Upon a Time in America or like his big movies, like he plays the Chinese hero of Wong Fei Hung, which is kind of like a Billy the Kid sort of character or but a more benevolent uh, character than Billy the Kid. But it's all wire work. Like Iron Monkey was another one, I think was Donnie Yen. Well, I, my my first Jet Li experience, because I never I I never f- grew up watching the the Hong Kong martial arts film. So my first Jet Li experience was watching him as the bad guy in Lethal Weapon Four. Oh, he was great though. He was fantastic. Yeah, I I was just thinking to myself as I was watching that film, holy fuck, this little guy is the scariest motherfucker I've ever seen. Yeah, I want that that part when they stick the fucking rod through him and he's still fighting both Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. Yeah, I'm just like oh. God, this guy, this guy's fucking insane. Or ever when he's playing with like, I don't know if it's a rosary. I, I don't think it's a rosary. He's playing with those Chinese beads, but then right. he'll come up behind you and strangle you. I was like, this, the charisma on this motherfucker to be menacing. I thought, I always thought he was better. I thought, I, I, whenever I would see the, the films where he was a hero, I was, I would always think to myself, I kind of like him better as a bad guy. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know if he's always, he seems like he's the hero in most of the films. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what they, that's what he banks everything on. Like Jackie Chan never played a villain because the audience wouldn't accept it. Right. So he, so yeah, so Jet Li, I, I like, but I don't love him. Like Jack, it's like Bruce, Jackie, um, Donnie Yen are like my three ones. Sammo Hung, I like probably more than uh, Jet Li. Wow. Yeah. Did you I ever love- watch War? With uh, Lee and, and Statham, yeah, him and Statham. You know, I never saw that movie. Never saw that movie. No, I remember. I only watched it once. I, I mean, I was highly entertained. The story itself isn't great, um, yeah. But just the fact that Statham and Lee Jet Lee were in, in a film together, I, I creamed my pants a little bit. No, that's awesome. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I still love the Expendables. A lot of people hate it, but I, I'll watch the first two over and over. What did you think of? Um, did you ever see the movie with Jet Lee and uh, Jackie Chan together? No, I kind of like the I Forbidden said, I, Kingdom. Yeah, I I don't even bother with. The it was newer. unfortunate that that was the film that they finally got those two actors together. Yeah, it was it's like a silly film. Yeah, it was like getting Stallone and Schwarzenegger together, and by that time it was Expendables, and it's like you know, well, they, even Expendables knew what it was getting into. Right, Forbidden Kingdom is about this dragon and this like goofy warlord. It's it's not even, it's too goofy. Yeah, it's a strange film. I don't know why that that they. They chose the film to get those two together to be a goofball fest. I I don't know. I I guess I saw parts of it and I was like, I can't do this. I just yeah. they're out of their prime. I kind of like you yeah. Know. That's the thing too is we caught both Jet Li and Jackie Chan towards the end of their their runs anyway. So right. you're not seeing prime, especially Jackie. You're not seeing prime Jackie Chan, even though he's fucking great in Rush Hour. You're not seeing the best of the best. No, you're not. He did all those moves in Police Story anyway. Or, <laughs> yeah. So it's like yeah. But yeah, but Sammo Hung, man, he's, I don't know. Sammo Hung? Sammo Hung is, all right, yeah, so look him up. there was the Seven Little Fortunes, the Seven Little Fortunes, which came out from the Peking Opera School in Hong Kong. Basically, Jackie Chan was an orphan. His parents were going to sell him because they had no money. And they literally gave him to the Peking Opera School. So they raised him there. Mm-hmm. And he met these other performers. There was seven of them that ended up becoming uh, famous. So it was Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Yun Byu, Yunwa and the rest. I can't remember their names, but <laughs> you've seen them in, in Hong Kong movies and probably Hollywood films. 
And Jackie, Sammo, and Yeon Byu went on to make movies together. So they did Wheels on Meals. They did Dragons Forever. They did Project A, uh, Heart of the Dragon. And whenever the three of them were on screen together, it was lightning. It was lightning in a bottle. It was electric. And Samuel Hung is the fat guy. And if you think yeah. fat people can't move, this motherfucker can move. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching some clips right now with Samuel. Yeah. Oh, Samuel's amazing. And in Samuel, the three of them sort of went on their own. So Samuel, I think, has the most prolific career outside of the three of them because he's an amazing fight choreographer. He's an amazing director. He choreographed a lot of fight scenes that people in Hollywood have watched that don't realize it was him. And his, I'd say his his two best movies are Eastern Condors and Pedicab Driver. And just watch those movies and you'll just see a master at work. Because that guy, he's just, he's like the full, I mean, he doesn't look good because he's a big fat dude. Yeah, I was going to say, it's funny watching him fight because this looks like a guy that just drank way too many beers and right. now he's just moving around. He's moving. He's, yeah, he's yeah. moving around as if he's Jackie Chan. Yeah, exactly. So he's he's one of my personal favorites. And he... And Donnie Yen did a movie to the, together called SPL, which I think is called Killzone in the States. I'm okay. not sure. Is he old in this one? Because I think I'm watching the clip with Samuel Hong and Donnie Yen. Yeah, he's got like a purple suit on. Yes, and yes, yeah, yes. That fight scene, oh my God, one of my, my top 10 fight scenes. So that fight scene right there is when Donnie was throwing in a lot of MMA moves. Mm-hmm. And right there, you're meeting like two legends like coming together. And they're both doing what they do best. So Donnie like grabs him by the legs and takes him down. I'm watching doing, like, it, yeah. Yeah, that, that fight scene's great. It's a little short, but it's, oh my God. I just <laughs> I just cream my pants. Do, do you like Hong Kong cinema more than the Godzilla stuff and the the kaiju stuff? That's a good question. I, you know, it's, the, the way you're talking about this, I mean, you're super excited. Yeah, when I was a teenager is when I really got into a lot of the Hong Kong stuff more. So I would go into Chinatown in New York and buy all the bootlegs and the VHS from China. And that was around 97. So that's when I discovered John Woo. And that's when I decided I wanted to work in movies because of those films. Because Godzilla, I mean, you look at those movies and you're like, well, it's like special effects and they don't really do it anymore. But the Hong Kong films, you're like, this is stuff that they still make. So that was sort of what got me into working in films that sort of planted the seed where I wanted to be a film director. I wanted to make my own action movies. I mean, it was, you know, stuff that, and and then like when I got into the business and found out what went into directing, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. Like I, I just want to eat the sausage. I don't want to know how it's made basically. (laughs) So, uh, I have a lot of love and I'm also a drummer too. So a lot of people don't know that about me. I was, uh, if I didn't pursue a career in the arts, I would have been a drummer for really. Yeah. Yeah. I was that into music. When Holy I was in my twenties, yeah, my dad was a drummer. He used to play with a lot of uh, bands, you know, nothing major. And then he had like this Ringo Starr drum set, left it in the garage, and then I would just go play Metallica songs on it. So I got really into like metal drumming and rock drumming and alternative stuff like that. So you're just when, an all-around creator, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's you know when you get older, it sort of sucks because you know you get married or you move out, or right? You gotta. Uh, rent to pay whatever and you gotta you know you gotta let go of those you gotta let those go things, yeah. and, and it sucks because you lose a part of yourself and I think that's why there's a lot of really angry guys I say guys because it's usually guys that have to give up a lot of the stuff that they love that makes them who they are and there's nothing wrong with holding on to that stuff when you're an adult you know like I have my shelf full of Godzilla toys and I go to conventions and I, I, I I'm not married you know. but I think my my theory on that is 
there's a lot of guys that just end up with girls or partners that don't understand or are not accepting of that portion of their life or right. they feel like they need to hide it. I, th- right. I think all that stuff could be better if they found, if they had a person on the other side that was accepting of it. Yeah. And, and even that, I mean, that, that you know, it, uh, I don't want just I don't want to turn into a relationship podcast, but no. uh, it can but, if you want it to. No, no, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with that. Uh, but you know, it's it's a it's a it's a balance, and yeah. you have to sort of you know. I work, I come home, you know. I try to spend time with my wife. I try to do my artwork. Sometimes something takes precedence over the other, and something else suffers, and it's a constant balancing act, and you have to do the best you can. The point is, is you can't. You can't lose it. You can't lose your grip on that because that's that's what makes you who you are. You know, right. I'm an artist. That's what makes me who I am. Without that, I'm just a ball of nothing. <laughs> you know, it's just matter floating in the galaxy. <laughs> Whenever I've I've dated girls, I've maybe not right off the bat, but eventually I let them in on the fact that I, I nerd out about Godzilla, and, and yeah. I usually I've gotten pretty good reactions to it. Yeah, it's there's no the stigma is not as bad as it used to be. No. But, and it's more, it's understandable because I can just go back to being a kid and saying that I liked it as a kid. I remember the first time I got into Godzilla, I was at Toys R Us with my aunts. Right. And we were, we were in the checkout line. So we'd already bought in the toys I wanted. Yeah. And on the, on the end cabinet was pick, uh, the whole eight VHS of Godzilla versus the sea monster. Okay. So on the, on the cover was, it was drawn, I believe. Right. It was a giant lobster. And then Godzilla shooting fire out of his mouth at yeah. the lobster. Mm-hmm. And I went to my aunt's aunt and I go, can we get that? I want to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was, and from then on, I was, and I think they hemmed and hawed for a little bit and were, were thinking to themselves, or even telling me out loud, I don't know if this is appropriate for you. Because they, they, you know, they, I don't think they were all that familiar with Godzilla. Right. But they, they, they took the risk and bought it and I was fucking stuck from there. So Godzilla versus the sea monster is my first ever Godzilla film. You know, that's a lot of people's first. That and Megalon is a lot yeah. of people's first. Yeah. We got it. I mean, do you, are you good on time? I'm fine. Yeah. I, I go all night, but you know, because <laughs> I, I, we, I, I can't have you on with me and we not nerd out about Godzilla for at least a little bit. No, it's like, look, if you because want to do another half hour, 45 minutes is fine with me. Oh yeah, no, we're we're still going. Oh, all we'll right. Do, yeah, we, we got at least another half hour. I'm good. I'm only getting hotter. I'm getting hot. I'm sweating more. <laughs> you getting in bothered here. about I'm getting this? Getting bothered. <laughs> There's no oxygen in this room because the window's closed. There's no fan. I'm dying. Let's go. <laughs> Just I mean, keeping me awake. Because every time I try to nerd out with you about Godzilla, Imran's there, and I love you, Imran. But Imran's not a Godzilla nerd. He's a big Debbie Downer. Emron, I hate you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, Emron is amazing. I love Emron. His so wild much. enthusiasm, it, tra- it, it translates to everything. He just isn't a Godzilla guy. And that's fine because he's a Spider-Man guy. Right, right. Spider-Man's another thing I love, but that's a whole other podcast. So besides, let's take out the original. What's your favorite Godzilla film of all time? Including the Showa, the Heisei, and the Millennium, and the Legendary. Everything. Just, but the, the, the OG, you can't say because that's, you can't, yeah. that's a classic. And it's its own movie. It right. really is its own movie. Like That's like Schindler's List, um, right. which is terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, God. I always default to Monster Zero because that was one of my big ones as a kid. And I could watch it over and over. So that one's more for nostalgic reasons. Yeah, like my heart is just all over that movie. Favorite? Oh, God. It's tough. It's, you know, Multiverse Godzilla, Biollante, GMK, Terra Mecha Godzilla. I mean, 
I'll go with Monster Zero. That's always an easy choice. Monster Zero. Yeah. I got. I, I. When I think of that question, I got to think of it in two different ways. Mm-hmm. I got to think of it in the nostalgia way, and then I got to think of it in the okay, what did I legitimately like the best? Right. So f- for me, nostalgia. That's so tough. I'm trying to think which one I would have liked the best. I think I would probably say Ghidra, the three-headed monster. Fuck yeah, I was gonna say that too. Just I was gonna say that. Seeing Godzilla team up with Mothra and Rodan, and at that point in my Godzilla fandom, I was quite confused because I would see movies where Godzilla was the villain, and <laughs> <laughs> see movies where he's the hero, and I was like, "What right. is going on?" Right, and and yeah, because they're not released in chronological order in the states. So you get them whenever it's like right. he's fighting the smog him. monster, and then all of a sudden he's got a son, and you're like, "What's going on?" Oh man, the smog monster! It took me forever to find that film to watch. Yeah, it was one of the lost films for a while. My favorite all timer though is Godzilla versus Destroya. Destroya. <laughs> I mean, if you if you're a Godzilla fan and you watch that film at the end when he is dying and they're shooting the the cold lasers at him and shit, how can you not just feel a well of emotion? Oh yeah, to this day I have a hard time watching that ending. Like I can't do it. I can't. I can't fucking do it. Like I'll just turn it off or something. I, I, I mean, I. You know, the writing isn't the best on these, but I, I thought it was pretty goddamn clever that he was a nuclear reactor and he was about to explode. Like, that was the way they were going to get rid of him. Yeah, it was it was really good writing. And, that, I mean, and they tied it back to the oxygen destroyer. Right, right. <laughs> With the pre-cam. That's like, that was the villain he was fighting is the one that killed him, basically, yeah. in the first film. Yeah, that one's good. I like it. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, there's ob- like an obvious aliens ripoff sequence in that. That's like oh, holy, yeah. sh- like with, even with the radar. It's, <laughs> oh my god, what are you doing? Was but, that that film was before Gamera Legion, right? Because Gamera Legion kind of did the same thing, right? Gamera came out in '95, the first one. So the first one came out in '95, which is when Destroyer came out, and yeah, then and Legion, which is my personal favorite kaiju movie of all time, of all time yeah. yeah it came out in 96 so <laughs> the joke is toho did it first dai did it better dude let's talk about the camera fucking oh fucking i can shit. i can talk at because five hours about everyone talks movie. about you know what everyone talks about godzilla right but camera that trilogy is where it's at jesus christ <laughs> i know i well you know like we have our little uh G-Fest chat. I go to G-Fest chat uh, yeah. or, or our group, you know, a group chat with a bunch of artists and you're in it and you chime in every once in a while. But. Uh, yeah, there's, so this, let me just, for the listener, there's a bunch, there's G-Fest, which is this annual convention in Chicago. Bilotti will be there again this year. And I've met a bunch of artists through this, through this fest, this fest, this comic convention, or not a comic convention, convention. Right. And they're all artists. And then there's just me who doesn't, I don't do art. I just chime in and read and laugh. But, um, yeah, go ahead and continue. Um, but we were having, uh, we were talking, and and I think I was sending you guys clips because I I've been revisiting the Gamera movies again, and I'm just watching these movies. And I'm like, motherfucker, like they're so fucking good, and they have no reason to be good. And the no. director was never a fan of Gamera. He hated Gamera, and he didn't hate him, but he wasn't a fan. He was a Godzilla fan. Kaneko, Kaneko, yeah, Kaneko. Um, all the other guys, like no one. You, I I know maybe like two sh- original Gamera fans from like the 60s because people just sort of poo-poo over those original movies. They were made for kids and they were just kind of stupid. So these new movies, they just, there's a trilogy of Gamera movies. Came out in 95, 96, and 99. Changed the game. I mean, if you want to know how to blend suitmation, like guy in suit with CGI and give an adult story, look at those fucking movies. Legendary just did that shit because they fucking they they stole wholesale from Gamera Three for that first Godzilla movie. 
Oh, I mean, yeah. it's like guys, like oh, you like did you watch a Godzilla movie before you made this movie? Like you've <laughs> clearly been watching Gamera. Yeah, I mean, all the stuff where they're fighting. What's that city where he first in t- in, encounters the Gaios um, in Gamera three? Do you remember that city? Um, just, Shibuya. Not, Shibuya, t- yeah, right? Shibuya. Holy where he's shit. not tethered to humans anymore, so he's just going all out, and he's the 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 carnage all around him. The 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 collateral damage is just immense. Yeah, like when you first saw that, like, what was the first thing that went through your head after watching the first two movies? Oh, when I saw first off, I was just like, holy shit, Gamera's fucking insane. Yeah, <laughs> that, was what I, that was exactly what I thought. Right, and then I and then I and I, I was at the age it was around 12, 11, 12. Right. So at that point, I could appreciate things looking better. And I was thinking to myself, holy shit, man, this looks real. Like yeah. this actually looks real. And it, the way they shot it with the perspective of looking up, I believe there's a scene where they're in a subway and you can see them fighting through the right. hole. Oh, yeah. And the, that perspective just make, it made the, the monsters way more menacing than they ever had any right to be. Yeah, 100%. And, and all that stuff is in uh, the legendary Godzilla when Godzilla is fighting um, the Mudos in, in San Francisco. Like right. you get that same perspective, that same feel. Yeah. Even the, the, I mean, know, even the, you know, the shot where they're in the, the bunker and you look up and you can see the fucking, fucking Mudo about to attack Godzilla. That's yeah. straight from Gamera versus Kyle's. Yeah. It's in, all there. Uh, Gamera three. It's all there to uh, give context for the listeners who probably turned it off because they heard Gamera. Um, yeah, who's Gamera? Yeah, we'll f- I don't care. Talk about Bruce Lee. Talk about Bruce Lee. Get back to Bruce Lee. No. Fucking wrestling. Um, Fuck all. Fuck all y'all. We're talking about Gamera. Yeah. So Gamera, if you don't mind, I'll give a brief yeah, summary. Good. You're you're way better at explaining. You're 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 a poet, man. Well, I'm a nerd. August is, <laughs> August is a poet. I, he's a warrior poet. I'm just a, I'm just a guy. I'm just a man. <laughs> Um, Gamera is a giant fire-breathing, fire-breathing flying turtle. It sounds so stupid, but when you watch it, you're like, holy shit. So Gamera was created by uh, Atlantis because Atlantis was an advanced civilization and they created these bat-like creatures called the Gauss, G-Y-A-S. The Gauss started feeding on mankind or the people of Atlantis and they were growing to a large size and they, they were turned on their creators. They basically. turned on their creators. So the people of Atlantis made uh Gamera from the genetically modified a sea turtle to fight the Gauss. So he's like the hunter, like, you know, the Muto is Gauss and Godzilla is Gamera, the hunter, the predator. Right. So looking uh, to achieve balance. Well, exactly. God, I <laughs> fucking hate you. Legendary. I hate, I hate you so much. You don't much. like that? I don't like the first one. I'm excited for the second one. Okay, but um, but back to to, put you, yeah, back to Gamera. Back to Gamera. Back to what really everyone's here to listen to. Exactly. (laughs) They they press play to hear us talk about Gamera. (laughs) Three movies and even Godzilla fans don't even watch. Anyway, (laughs) so they find this floating island in the middle of the Pacific, and it has all these rocks on it. And they go and they excavate it, and they find this monolith, and it has like these little um, tear-shaped amulets, and they collect them all. And uh, and then they get all the Pokemon. No, sorry. Yeah, they find all the Pokemon. Um, where was it? Oh, yeah. So they find these amulets, and then all of a sudden the Gauss birds start waking up. They start hatching from this island. They start eating people. And then this girl who's on the expedition, whose father's on the expedition, she grabs one of the amulets because she thinks it's cool, but it starts glowing. And then all of a sudden when she you know, grabs onto it, she, you know, Gamera wakes up. He comes out. He breaks out of the rocks. And then when Gauss is over, like, uh, I think Tokyo – Gamera starts charging for him and the girl has a psychic connection to Gamera. So basically the people of Atlantis made these amulets 
for for the inhabitants of Atlantis to sort of have a connection with the monster to say, you know, we're here to fight with you. We're here to make you stronger, which is a really cool concept that you don't really see in a lot of monster movies. So the first movie is he's tied to humanity with through this girl and he fights the Gauss, you know, he Gamera's victorious, spoilers, because there's a sequel. Sure. And, you know, he flies off, and that's it. Part two is an alien invasion that comes to Earth. and That's your classic kaiju my class, alien. Classic kaiju uh, alien invasion. Alien invasion yeah. And it's either the aliens are going to, they're not malevolent. They're not there to destroy because they're like the War of the Worlds aliens. That's part of their DNA is to, they're like uh, plants where they basically go and they multiply and that's how they live. But in order for them to live, we have to die. So right. they shoot a bunch of oxygen in the air, right? Oxygen. They shoot a space seed that goes to the next planet. Yeah, yeah. And they have all these insects and they have the mother legion, which is like a giant insect kaiju. Very well thought out the way that they, these aliens um, are here to destroy and not, not intentionally. Right. They're, they're, they really don't give a fuck about humans. They're just trying to survive. And they're just trying the to survive. They, the way they survive is to kill kill the planet that they're on the same way we survive you know we right. so let's go fucking you know destroy everything so we could have our khaki and uh, our khaki pants and uh, <laughs> fucking lattes and our plastic anyway um oh not to put you on your soapbox here holy shit jesus christ fuck you <laughs> fuck humanity jesus um so yeah so part two is basically the government of japan coming together trying to figure out um how to stop the legion Gamera again sort of teams up with humanity, but the thing is, Gamera gets nuked because when they shoot the space seed, it's a nuclear explosion and they destroy an entire city, flames, everything, and Gamera's like dead. And the girl who has a psychic link goes there with a bunch of children and she uses all their strength to sort of, uh, you know, Gamera comes back and he takes off, but then the amulet's broken and she can't feel him anymore. Yeah, it was, it was, it was all, it took all their strength. All to do their that. strength. Um, so Gamera basically defeats the Legion. Spoilers. Well, let me let me jump in here without sure. that amulet because this this ties into part three. Mm-hmm. He no longer he still feels obligated to help Earth. He has no obligation though to care about the people. Exactly, exactly. He doesn't have the tie anymore. Right. So part at the end of part two, he summons the Earth's uh, mana, which is a very big thing in Japanese Chinese culture. Is the uh, energy of the Earth. Which George Lucas stole for the Force. Anyway, so <laughs> Gamera absorbs all like a lot of mana from the planet, and he shoots like a a, a fire blast from his his chest. stomach, yeah. yeah, his chest that destroys Legion. So the third film comes, and the Gauss start awakening again, and they tie it, it. It's because he drained from the mana, right? Yes. So yeah. taking the mana has depleted the Earth of certain uh, life energies that were in place to sort of keep the eggs from being hatched that were planted like uh, millennia ago. So because of that, it started awakening and then awake, it starts awakening the Gauss and it awakens a creature called the Iris, which is, um, God, I can't remember because I'm in the middle of watching the movie right now and I didn't <laughs> get to the part where they explain the Iris, but it's another egg and it's similar to- It's DNA. a mutated Gauss, right? It's a mutated Gauss. Yeah. And another girl who Gamera killed her family in the first movie- swear like hates Gamera and she happens to find this I mean it's a little contrived like oh well she just happens to find it right right but she finds the egg and she bonds with the creature and in a twist on the amulet from the first movie her hatred fuels the iris and she goes on a uh, like a mission of vengeance against Gamera with iris but the thing is Gamera's hunting the gauss in this movie and because he doesn't have that Connection to humanity, like we were saying earlier, he's blowing his, he's blowing up Gauss with his fireballs. They're falling onto cities. He's killing people because he doesn't care anymore. 
not that he doesn't care. He just has no tie to humanity. Right. So that's he's not his main priority anymore. Right. So the his milita- main priority is just to get rid of these fuckers. Exactly. He has, he's the alpha predator like right. Godzilla. And he's basically, you know, the Japanese government turns on him. But the girl that has a psychic link, like she's still on his side and she's like, no, Gamera will fight for us. And it basically ends with one of the greatest, it's short, but it's one of the greatest kaiju ending battles I've ever seen. Amazing. It, it's just, I don't even want to spoil that because yeah. it's a, it's a movie that you could watch. You could watch like a standalone. You could just watch it as that, but you don't get that payoff unless you watch the first it's two. It's super fulfilling if you've seen the first two. Yeah. It's one of the rare trilogies where they all get better in a way. I agree. No, and but they all and but they're all different. They're all their own yes. sort of the Gamera, Gamera one is your classic good versus evil kaiju film. Right. Gamera two is your alien invasion. Gamera three is this dark it's this dark drama almost. Right. You know, it, it, with with some mystical elements in it. Um but it's it's considerably darker than the first two. Oh, much. And, and yeah. even the ending you know, when he beats Iris, the, the ending after, it's not all that optimistic. <laughs> no, no. He, spoilers. So, yeah, he basically beats, he defeats Iris, but he blows off his hand in the process because Iris, remember, if you remember, she Iris stabs his hand to the wall with one of her tentacles. Right. And she starts draining his life, his, his energy out of him. And Gamera, at the same time, has his hand inside of Iris because he grabs, he reaches into her to grab the little girl that bonded with Iris. It's, right. It sounds insane, but it's absolutely amazing. It's it's, <laughs> it's much better. Or it's it's hard to describe, but very well done on screen. Yeah, it's just it's so well done. So it's this tense Mexican standoff with the two of them, and Gamera's like, "Fuck, what do I do?" So he blows off his pinned hand and screams and pulls his other hand out. So then Iris fires. It's fireball at Gamera that it absorbed from him, but he catches it with this nub of an arm and he the turns, stump, yeah. he turns because Gamera, if you don't know, I'm, I, you probably don't know. Most you of don't you know. out there, all two of you out there that like Gamera um, or don't like Gamera, he, uh, he can manipulate fire. So he turns the fire into a fire hand and sticks it right into Iris and just explodes. And you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. And then he he puts the girl down and he revives her with, you know, and, and she sort of comes, she's like, oh my God. Like you could see that she is on Gamera's side after that and everyone is like rejoicing. And then the next shot is this typhoon that was surrounding the city during the end battle. It starts breaking away and you see a military commander. He gets a call and he goes, there's a Gauss flock of millions heading towards Japan for Gamera right now. And he said, we're changing our mission. We're going after Gauss. And the last shot is Gamera with one arm walking in a city of fire towards just he's leaving. He's leaving the just walking away into the, Ga- the Gauss flock. And it yeah, just he's walking ends. towards the Gauss flock. Yeah. Yeah. It just it, ends. It's, it's his basically it's his last stand. He's his last he's, stand. He's, and he's severely outmatched and he's going right. to die. <laughs> you know, he's going to die. Well, the movie starts so. I, there was some debate, debate I've seen online. This is the way I, the the movie Gamera Three starts with them doing underwater some more some sort of underwater mission, right? And you see all the Gamera shells there. The guy at the Gamera graveyard. Graveyard. Yeah. Some had speculated that those were all the failed attempts at a Gamera. I had speculated, or I interpreted it as that this war has been happening for generation generations upon generations, and he was the last. So yeah. there's been other cameras before him, and they've died. They've you know as it sh- it shows that they're mortal. You know they've lost the battles, and he's the last of his kind. 
Yeah, so that's which is yeah. that the one? Is that the way you've interpreted, it or was the other the other way? I kind of went both ways. I thought it was because they call it the Gamera graveyard, which means they died, right? And then some people like those are the prototypes, but you know, I I, think, I, I feel like it's better if it. I mean, I, I, I the movie is much more rewarding if it's he's the last of his kind. It is much more rewarding. Yeah, I think it is, and and, I, it, and I, it starts the movie off on a tone where oh my god, this is dark. Like he's gonna die. Like you right, know, Gamera's gonna die. They just right. don't show it. But the original ending that they wrote was the Gauss wipe out all of humanity and leave Japan. And the director, Kaneko, was like, we can't do that. It's too dark. So he changed it. And it cost him and the uh, screenwriter had a feud after that. I don't think they ever spoke to this day over it. So basically that all the Gauss were just going to Japan. Like they throughout the movie, what they do really well is they show you, but without like overdoing it, like a Michael Bay movie would just show you everything. Right. They have news clippings of Gauss appearing in Mexico, New York, London. So this whole movie, you have this buildup, a slow subplot of these Gauss appearing around the world and killing people and decimating humanity, but you don't really see it. So by the end, you finally see the flock and how many there are, and the whole screen is filled with these Gauss birds like heading towards uh, Kyoto, where Gamera was fighting Iris. So Insane it's ending. Just, oh, it's so, it's, so good. Oh, it's, it's so good. And then there was the... There was a Gamera 4 that was a fan movie. Did you hear I, about that? I heard about that, yeah. Yeah. I never then, ended up watching it because in my mind, that the series is done right there. If, if Kaneko's not doing it, the, the series is done. Yeah, I know. It's, yeah. I, I saw the beginning of it and it sort of, it takes place at the end of part three where you see the, the flock, you know, the, the, the Gauss horde and Gamera just basically ignites himself and explodes and takes them all out, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. But it kind of like takes away that mystique of like what really happened. What happened? Yeah. The movie in your head is always better than what you see. Anyway. Yeah, you don't need to know what happened. I yeah. think. What did you think of when Kaneko came over then and did Godzilla and then GM did GMK? That's one of the best Godzilla movies ever made. You love that movie. See, oh my god! I, yeah. I was. That's right. I I dis I was super disappointed with that film. Yeah, you know why though? I I know why you're disappointed because in a way I had to accept it as this is the best we're going to get. Because Kaneko's ideas originally, Toho didn't want him to do certain things. You know, right. for people that don't know, uh, he originally wanted three other monsters to be in it. Yeah, but Baron, Toho, Baragon and Anguirus. Anguirus. And Toho was like, no, they're not bankable because Toho knows everything, apparently. They're sure. always right. Um, so they had to put King Ghidorah and Mothra, but they kept Baragon. Right. And Anguirus was going to be an ice monster. Uh, Baragon was the earth monster and Varan was the wind monster. They were elemental monsters. Uh, So he had to like get rid of that story and they kind of, you know, I think they, they just hamstrung him a little bit. They kind of gave, they gave him a lot more difficulties making that than when he made the Gamera film. So that's why there's like a huge difference, not Mm. a huge difference, but there is a difference. I mean, I think that movie blows away a lot of the movies from the 90s in terms of what it was trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's cool if you feel different. I mean, that's yeah, just, it, it, I, you know? I mean, I enjoyed the film. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. For me, there was just something off. I, I think I had the expectation of the Gamera films walking in. And, you know, he tried to tie in the earth and the elements and the mystique. You know, right. I, I, It just didn't resonate for me that Godzilla was now representing all the forgotten souls of the war. Right. I know they, you know, they changed him up a little bit. I also didn't like the Godzilla design. I thought he had a pot belly the entire time. Yeah. No, you said as much. Yeah. (laughs) And 
it would have been much better, I think, if they would have had the the monsters that he had originally wanted. King King Ghidorah for me as a hero doesn't work. Um, they make him a lot smaller. Right, Mothra is tiny. It, it just it doesn't work for me that they're using these iconic characters and totally depowering them, and basically re remaking their origins to fit this narrative that wasn't originally the narrative he wanted. No, I agree. I I still to this day I don't like. You know, that end battle, I have a hard time watching because I just, I like the fight with Baragon so much more. That's a good fight. That's an, Yeah, that's a great fight. But the end is kind of like, uh, it kind of just goes on and on. And it's Godzilla is the most powerful one. And I get, I know what they were doing, but it's just that the changes were so drastic that it was hard to like accept it in your brain that like, oh, well, he's the, he's a hero now. He's not a villain and they're mystical creatures. And so I, I appreciate Kaneko tying it to World War II. I, I like the symbolism in the movie because Kaneko is a pacifist and he's very much in line with the Shiro Honda who directed the original Godzilla film, who was more of a pacifist and anti-war and more liberal. So though that stuff I appreciate. Um, you know, forgetting forgetting the mistakes of the past is basically that's kind of how Godzilla was revived, like forgetting about the World War II right. victims and just sort of make, you know, the younger generation having disregard for it. And that's what sort of brought these creatures back again. Um, so that element I liked, but yeah, there's, you know, like I said, I like it more than most of the other films that came out in the nineties, but it's, you're always going to have that. What could have been, you know, right. If he had the money or the original <laughs> Kaiju or whatever, let me ask you to do this. So if, if someone's made it this far in our, in our episode, and I don't know if you have, because <laughs> you probably stopped once we started talking about camera yeah, or probably. even kaiju films. Yeah. Um, but you're great at explaining things. Why is the first Godzilla so awesome? Just, just tell people. Um, preach go- to the preach to the public without going into a plot for plot or a, a a whole synopsis of the film. The first Godzilla is a very dark anti-war film about the dangers of nuclear war, nuclear warfare and the devastation it leaves in its wake. Godzilla is essentially a walking nuclear weapon in that original film. And it had a lot of um, dark scenes in it. There's a scene in it where there's a mother with her children in Tokyo as Godzilla's destroying it, and there's no place for her to run, and she's basically crying and screaming and waiting for death. And it's so hard to watch. Well, that. she's she's whispering to her kids, "You're going to see your dad soon." Yeah, it's terrible. It's yeah. absolutely terrible. <laughs> We're going to be home soon. And then the part that always gets me is the prayer for peace. So when Godzilla devastates Tokyo, they, the uh, Subaraya, the special effects technicians, uh, from what I understand, they looked at pictures of Hiroshima, you know, and sort of made Tokyo look like Hiroshima. Right. And there's a sequence where they have a prayer for peace where all these young uh, choir girls on TV are all singing in unison for peace and, you know, uh, for basically the, uh, with regard to the devastation of Japan. And for for anybody that has ever wondered uh, about the atrocities of war and what it does to people, but don't want to watch a movie like, you know, there's a movie called Hiroshima, Right. That's I haven't seen it, but it's pretty it's pretty heavy. Or or you know, I always joke around about Schindler's List to want to know about the um, uh, concentration camps. You know, right. you sort of watch that or Pre- Saving Private Ryan if you want to know about D Day. That's a movie to watch to sort of see like a light. I don't want to say lighthearted, but if you want to get the effect of what the mentality in Japan was like, because 
Godzilla started as like a sort of cash grab by Toho. We need to make this monster movie because of King Kong. And we need to make this movie. And they were going to make it a giant octopus. And Honda sort of came in and they, they, they made it something else when they didn't have to. And that's why I think everybody should see the original Godzilla because it's still haunting. It's in black and white. The, the effects still hold up in a lot of sequences. 100%. And the message of the movie is that the scientist that is one of the central characters of the story, he makes a weapon 10 times more powerful than a nuclear weapon. And it's the only thing that they could use to stop Godzilla. And he is so afraid to use it because he knows if this falls into the wrong hands, it's going to be used for malevolent reasons. And it could basically end mankind quicker than a nuclear weapon could. And it's called the Oxygen Destroyer, which destroys all the oxygen and the water supplies. And it destroys everything in its path. And at the end, he uses it on Godzilla. He goes underwater with another diver and he cuts the rope and he sacrifices himself because he can't bear the thought of his weapon going into the wrong hands. So he wants to die and he wants the weapon to die with him. And it's so powerful for Great anybody. Ending. Yeah, it's such an emotional ending. And it's just and it's just like, you know, the monster's dead and everybody's crying because of the scientist and just the story. It's so it's so there's heavy. no real winner at the end of that. They, it's, it's not no. like they celebrate this this victory. It, the, the the whole thing's tragic. The whole movie's tragic. And your point about watching this film and getting you know the the feel of how it was. It's it's a film where you watch it and you're not expecting to feel the way you do about you know you're not expecting to learn about right. the atrocities of war. It's a, it's a backdoor way of of learning about what what happened to Japan because even you know it's about. Um, you know how what happens when when man kind of plays god with these weapons and and right. the, the consequences of that and even you, you know when they designed Godzilla his skin is supposed to reflect the burn marks of of nuclear war right you know? so it's right. all symbolism of this walking time bomb that was created just because right. humans were were uh, irresponsible with the weapons they were making and how are they were using them which and is that's, the atom bomb. Yeah. And that's my favorite interpretation of Godzilla out of all of them is he is uh, nature's answer to us for being foolish and thinking we can play God. Right. He's the answer. He's there to set things back. He's, you know, and, and he's our punishment for being so arrogant and foolish. And that's why Honda, he never wanted to make sequels. He's like, you can't make a sequel to a Godzilla movie. But his career at the time sort of dictated that that's where he was finding his success and that's what they were giving him. And he wasn't, you know, a rebel rouser. So he was like, oh, I'll, I'll make this movie, but it's going to be stupid, you know? <laughs> Did so, you like the the sequel? Godzilla Raids Again? Yeah. Eh, I like some of it. The end was pretty cool, but I didn't like the design. The, the fight scene was really well done. Because they sped it up. They made it yeah, look like they, they were feral animals getting after it. Yeah, they fucked up. They, they shot it at the wrong speed and then no one ever corrected them. And that's why it looks the way it does. They're moving right. much faster than they really should. Right. Um, but yeah, after that, it's a, it's a mixed bag, honestly, of, you know, he, and King Kong versus Godzilla, he's a goof, you know, he's, he's like, uh, he's like an, he's like an idiot, him and Kong are like morons. It's a total satire. <laughs> yeah, they, are, really they are, they are actually, now that I think about that movie, they are, they're both just giant goofballs getting at, getting after it. Yeah. And, uh, but Martha versus Godzilla is probably my favorite Kind of takes him a little bit more back to his roots of being yeah. a destroyer. Yeah, destroyer, dangerous. There's just no happiness at all in that movie. It's right. really, it's really dark. Um, but yeah, that's so. That's like you know, my thing with Godzilla is that 
you can make fun of it. You go, you go get uh, Godzilla vs. Megalon and be like, oh, that's a fucking joke or whatever. <laughs> Jet Jaguar. Yeah. I mean, if you watch, I saw the original Godzilla in a theater subtitled back in, I think, 10 years ago, whatever. And you left the theater just feeling horrible. I mean, it has that sort of effect on you. It and should. I, think, I mean, because yeah. it's, it's, how, it's how the war devastated Japan. That's, that's what they right. want, want you and, to feel. And, and as someone who, who has read a lot of World War II history, because my <laughs> grandfather served and he was stationed in the Pacific, there were atrocities on both sides. I'm not yeah, sitting everywhere. here. Yeah, I'm not sitting here defending Japan because they, ha- they attacked first, you know, and there's, a, there's no like, well, Pearl Harbor started World War II. No, it didn't. I mean, it was the Japanese were in China in 1931. Right. And the, the Germans were in Poland, you know, 1938. So, right. You know, there wasn't just one thing. There was a lot. World War One led World into War World One. War also, II. yeah, yeah, exactly. World War One, the World War One happening led to World War Two. Right. They're both and heavily connected. They're both connected, and you know, the Japanese did a lot of really bad shit in the Pacific to Americans. And Chinese. I don't think there's, I don't think there's ever a war where people don't do really bad shit. There's no, no there's never, you know, there's this classic sense of good versus evil, and World War Two is always propped up as the the last war where there was good versus evil. Right. And there is a lot of that, but there was atrocities on both ends. There was. I mean, and and two atrocities were the firebombing of Japan, which did more devastation than than both atom bombs combined. Right. Because those houses were made of wood, and they had these napalm bombs to jelly that would just stick to wood, and then when they would drop the bomb, it would explode, and the jelly would just spread over to all these other homes and... I mean, more people died in that than the atomic uh, atomic bombs. And then there's the bombing of Dresden, the firebombing of Dresden, which was another one. You know, there were two things that was – it was basically – you could look at it as like four years of frustration of fighting this war and the Amer- the allies just saying, fuck it, we're just bombing you back into the Stone Age. Right. But they, they bombed non-military cities and innocent people, so it's, you know – it's war, man. It's war. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no, you know, there's good. You think there's good guys and bad guys, but again, you know, there's atrocities on both sides. So, yeah. yeah, man. Well, we're we're about an hour and a half, probably into this. I think we can we can start to wrap this up a yeah. little bit. Let's do um, it. Where can uh, where can people find you? Where can people see your art? Give them the whole spiel so that if they've been listening this far, they're probably interested and want to want to look up shit. If they already weren't interested in interested and have heard this stuff before repeat it again so for anybody that <laughs> has stuck around this long <laughs> uh, my artwork can be found at robo7.com it's r-o-b-o the number seven dot com i'm also on facebook robo7 it's just the word robo7 no numbers or anything r-o-b-o-s-e-v-e-n and i'm on wait was that did i just say facebook or instagram you said facebook but that's I also instagram right yeah, I'm sorry. That's my Instagram. Is the word Robo Seven? Facebook is Robo uh, Number Seven. The Art of John Bellotti Jr. Um, I have all my artwork, my T-shirts, stuff like that. You can find it all on there. So, so let me clarify for the audience because you didn't explain it in the uh, most eloquent way. You kind of got a little. Well, you got a little confused between Facebook and Instagram. So, I did. Facebook or his site? It's the Number Seven Robo mm-hmm. Seven. Instagram it is Seven <clears throat> spelled out. Yes, because. When I made my website, Robo7, the word was taken. And then on Instagram, the word Robo7 with the number was taken. I was like, what are you, God, you got to be kidding me. So I had to sort of uh, <laughs> pick and choose. You know, I what, sort of, What's the significance behind Robo7? I probably have asked you before, but I clearly have forgotten. 
I, I, well, I think it's a cool name, but I think it's because one of my favorite animes is called Giant Robo. And I love the Ultra Hero, which we didn't even talk about, Ultra 7, mm-hmm. which was the second Ultraman character. And I said, let me just combine them and see what oh, okay. that sounds like. Simple enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, cool, man. Well, thanks for, thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah, no, I was I was really excited. I I apologize if it turned into the the Bruce Lee Eastern you know Eastern podcast, but you know it's what we love, right, Tony? <laughs> we, hey, we got to talk about whatever the guest wants. I'm not I'm not here to uh, dictate what you want to talk about. I'm just going to steer the conversation so we keep going. So no, that's, that's where awesome. it went. All right, that's fine. All right, cool guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.